Once upon a time, in the land of Great Britain, Amanda woke up to the sun shining on a bright Monday morning. Before she got out of bed, she opened the BBC weather app to check the weather for the day ahead on her phone. Rain all day! She quickly took a shower, made some breakfast, brushed her teeth and left the house. Amanda used Facebook to send a message to her friend, telling him she was almost at SOAS. Her friend replied, No, you're not. Your message location says you're still at home. Oops, Amanda was busted. She tapped her Oyster card at the underground station and read the news on the Guardian app using the Wi-Fi available underground. Arriving at Russell Square Station, she bought coffee at a cafe using her contactless card and made her way to SOAS for her first lecture of the day. Amanda was blissfully unaware that her morning schedule had created a trail of digital breadcrumbs. This means that she can be traced and tracked through the apps she accessed and the technology she used. But what does that really mean? Who has access to this information? And can it be used against us? Are we all blissfully unaware like Amanda? And should we be worried? Welcome to Digital Breadcrumbs by George Philip, Jennifer Ann Lazo, Ruham Jamali and Rudy Al-Jarudi. Our podcast explores the digital trails or digital footprints we create in our daily lives. The majority of applications we use require our location information. We willingly tag ourselves in specific locations through social media platforms and freely use contactless cards and debit cards, which give both retailers, banks and various other organisations information about our daily movements. We are constantly monitored on CCTV, and everything we research online is data being collected or stored. In this episode, we'll be talking to lecturers and students to discover the real cost of our digital footsteps. So first of all, what exactly is a digital trail? A digital trail is a trace that you leave behind you. It's almost like breadcrumbs that you leave behind, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, when you use a mobile phone, but also when you use a computer, or when you use really any kind of technology that has a chip in it. We interviewed Elisa Oreglia, a lecturer in global digital cultures at SOAS, to find out more about our digital footprints. Basically, when you have a phone, you have a series of sensors and you have this constant background communication between the phone and the cell towers, but also if it's connected online, between the phone and the internet. So there are all these apps that are getting information about your phone, about your environment. Dr. Oreglia tells us that all this communication is sent elsewhere. It doesn't just stay on your phone. And it's constant. It accumulates over time. But where is it being stored? According to the Dr. Oreglia, it's going to several different places. The signal on your mobile phone tells your mobile phone network where you are. Uh, but then you have uh, uh, you know, your GPS that might be uh, signals that go to a satellite. So it's a system to position your phone. 
She goes on to tell us about how information in your apps is stored locally and via the internet to the app's creators. The information can be dispersed through Wi-Fi or through your phone's operator. Basically, there are a lot of apps, a lot of background processes, and often we don't know exactly what they're doing. We then proceeded to ask Dr. Oreglia about what happens to data we have researched. When you do a search uh, on Google, that information goes through Google servers. So, first of all, it has to travel through uh, a variety of uh, internet service providers, uh, and then it gets stored into Google servers. And uh, uh, they can really be anywhere in the world. Uh, Google has several data centers scattered around the world, and so you're not really sure uh, of where they will be. It's not like if you're doing a search in the UK, the data will necessarily be kept in uh, Google servers in the UK. Dr. Oreglia then spoke about legislation processes and laws that may protect individuals from digital privacy breaching in the UK. So in the UK, there is a data protection law that was approved in 1998, and uh, it established a framework uh, around uh, what kind of access uh, you can get to your data, uh, what kind of access uh, um, companies as well as uh, public organization uh, can keep uh, about you and so forth. So there is uh, um, the UK government website about the Data Protection Act that has some very useful information just for regular users. Uh, it lays out in a very clear manner the way that uh, you can ask an organization or a company for what kind of information they have about you and these companies and organizations are actually required to uh, answer you. As a part of our research, we wanted to find out if any of the students or others at SOAS had any idea about what data they are sharing and where it might be going. So we asked them, and we got some interesting results. No, it's something I really don't think about. Every message sent on my phone, every message on Facebook, and every email I, I send out, these are in fact trails, and, and whenever I delete them, um, they still can be found. Emails, obviously. It's the presence you're living on the internet. We spoke to some individuals who had a good grasp of what digital trails are and whether or not they were creating them. Some were less sure about it, while some admitted to having never thought about it. If you're checking in on Facebook or if you're tagged in a location. I use uh, internet browsers and I think like Google and like all the others, they, they record that. The findings from our interviews made us realise that a lot of people mentioned Facebook or Google Maps as a form of digital trail they were creating. But most, like Amanda, were pretty unaware of the extent of their digital trails extending to their daily use of contactless cards and the majority of applications on their phones. I don't know, I was thinking about digital trailers, digital footprints. Not something that's spoken about very often. Yeah, but I frequently try to, to get rid of these uh, like cookies and like browsing history and this kind of stuff. But still, I guess there's still something left. Whatever website you go on, there is some register of it somewhere. So everyone has a digital trail. We found out that most of them had turned the global positioning system, more commonly known as GPS, off their phones. I only turn it on when I'm using apps that need to find my location. No, it's off, I think. No. I don't normally have it on. Now, 
Yes, because I used CityMapper to get to this location. Most of them said they would only turn it on specifically for directions using Google Maps or a web mapping app. But this was mainly to save battery on their phone, not out of concern that their location may be visible. But we're not just being tracked on our phones. We can be traced in other ways as well, like closed circuit television or CCTV. How many times do you think you appeared on CCTV camera in London? Doesn't it happen all the time? I mean, there are thousands of CCTV cameras, right? So... No idea. Well, I guess you appear in it like every day, multiple times. I don't know. Lots, I guess. Probably like a million times. <laughs> Here's some food for thought. In 2013, a study conducted by the British Security Industry Authority estimated that there are up to 5.9 million closed-circuit television cameras in the UK. This means that there is one CCTV camera for every 11 people in the United Kingdom. We asked people how that made them feel. Like I'm being watched. Well, maybe it's not a, a really nice feeling, but I think that this could increase the security of, of London in general. When I first heard about it, I got really nervous and I was like, this is so ridiculous, we're being watched. But then as the days go by, you just don't notice it anymore and you just take it for granted that you're being watched every single minute. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I don't like it. I mean, the police promote it because it can be useful for solving crime. Whether that's proportionate to the number that are there is another matter entirely. We also spoke with Murali Shanmugavellan, who convenes the MA Media in Development course at SOAS. He told us about a rival to the instant messenger application WhatsApp that is particularly popular in South Asia, called Hike. He shared his personal experience that upon downloading the app, he was required to give permission for all manner of personal information. It makes one think, what kind of information do apps like this need and what kind of access do they require? practically everything and there you have to have some sense of ethics why do you need to access my multimedia files to launch a chat app a question that i'm sure many of us have asked he tells us about a perception related to the scale of economy attached to data uh, data is a big business big data is big business but it's a red herring whatsapp is a most influential chat app right now but it hasn't made any money so if you're talking about killer app, bigger data equals tons of money, that's not the case. But somehow we actually have bought into this idea that digital data equals money. In the course of our research on digital trails and privacy, we came across an article called How Companies Learn Your Secrets by Charles Dug, published in the New York Times back in 2012. This article revealed that the desire of some companies to collect information from customers was really nothing new. Citing retail company Target as an example, the article explains the system of assigning a unique shopper code known as a guest ID number. Through this guest ID number, each shopper's consumer behaviour, demographic, home address, occupation, estimated salary, as well as the websites they visit are all recorded. That said, 
these companies are able to pay to gain access to very personal data about their consumers. These could range from information one easily gives away publicly, such as one's ethnicity, age or brand preference, for example, to the most private information, such as one's political leanings, or whether that person has declared bankruptcy or even filed for divorce. This in itself reveals how much data companies and retailers are gathering and how they are executing effective marketing techniques through these datas. This means that no one could question if we are all under a large social experiment where all our buying and spending patterns are also being observed and recorded. The data we produce as individuals mostly benefits big corporations because, as Dr Irregular has mentioned, this data, when segregated, becomes a highly valuable form of currency. Should we then, as producers of data, benefit from the money that we help generate? Or is the fact that we use these services for free sufficient enough to serve as a form of payment in return for our data? Just like Amanda, our lives continue in the digital world and leave digital breadcrumbs along the way. Armed with new information on this matter, we stand at the crossroads. Will this trail of data we leave benefit or harm us in the long run? But life goes on in a bustling city as London. Amanda once again woke up to the sound of the alarm, checked the BBC weather app, and continued to provide valuable information without taking any interest in it. After helping in making the public aware about information they are providing and whether they would like to take an interest in its value, we, George, Jen, Ruham and Rudy, would like to thank everyone who helped us create this podcast, including SOAS professors, staff and students.